Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today.
but I can play a mean hot cross buns on the piano at any time. Now, I found out, however, that people who know the fundamentals of music, they, you can just put a sheet music down in front of them, and they will begin to play this wonderful, wonderful music. Now, so putting your effort into something and getting the basics is very helpful. The same is true in the spiritual dimension. You don't just wake up one day or go to church and all of a sudden have this amazing heavenly experience, and then you are instantly mature. Godly wisdom is not like instant oatmeal. You don't mix a few verses with some baptismal water, wait three minutes, let it cook a little while, and you're a prophet of God. That's not the way it works. It isn't the result of wishing or wanting or even waiting. A solid, mature Christian life is the sum total. Listen, it is the sum total of the learning and the laying of the building blocks of a Christian life. What are those building blocks? Well, today we're going to read and examine five of them that Peter laid out, especially to reiterate those foundational commandments for spiritual maturity. The people he was speaking to were enduring some very serious pushback for simply living their faith and sharing the gospel. And so Peter said, look, I can't um, address every situation you're going to go through, but I can give you five commandments that will help you go through anything. As we get older, we all know that maturity is recognizing that choices carry consequences. I certainly had a good laugh this week as I read a refreshing public school story. It was in the news. A teacher in Chicago found a great way to make students pay for their crimes. The troublemakers at Riverside Brookfield High School in Chicago are now being forced to serve detention in an afternoon school program known as the Frank Sinatra Detention Club. There for 30 minutes, they must sit there, no talking, no homework, no snoozing. And what do they do? They listen to old blue eyes all cranked up. The teacher, Bruce Janu, who devised the club, smilingly said the kids hate it. They're miserable. He's not totally heartless, however. He said, I do let the students sing along if they want to. <laughs> Nobody does. Now, I know Frank Sinatra did it his way. Today, if we're going to learn anything, let's learn how to do it God's way. And so let's bow our heads and we'll jump into this wonderful passage. Father, thank you. We bless you. Teach us these five building blocks for a strong Christian life. Meet with us in the here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a series recalling the commands of Christ. Most people know there are commandments in the Bible. Of course, the ten come to mind quickly. Others know that there are many more in the Old Testament. Moral laws, ceremonial laws, civil laws, over 600 of them. There are wonderful guidelines. And when interpreted correctly and applied wisely, they are just simply amazing, brilliant principles for life. What many people don't realize, however, is that there are hundreds of commands in the New Testament. In fact, there are over 900 of them. We're calling them the commands of Christ because they're in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is front and center. A command. A command is not a suggestion. It's an imperative. It's something that we need to do. A command is not a mean God trying to keep you from having fun, but rather it is a loving God who is saying, here is your best life, and I want you to have that. And so we're going to now turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, if you're not already there. You can follow along in your app and uh, fill out the notes as we go along and keep them that way. And you can even share them with others. 
You can also fill out the handwritten notes, maybe put them in a little three-ring binder. But we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to join together in the public reading of God's inerrant word. We're going to read these verses. We use the King James Version for our public reading, and I use the same as I preach. All right, let's read it together out loud, and let's read it from the heart. This is a part of what God said is important to do in a public worship service. Ready, begin. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, unto the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now in 1 Peter, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle, is encouraging people. They're having some difficult times. They're being unjustly charged with things. They are being misrepresented, mistreated, and misjudged. They do not deserve the opposition that's against them, the pushback that they are receiving. The fact of the matter is, the Christians were the best things going in that first century ancient Roman Empire. And may I just say, the situation that they were in was not a whole lot unlike our in many ways. We have an administration doing everything they can to tear apart the family. They are undermining parents, they are vilifying Christians, and they are hurting evangelical churches. Who are the very ones, all the very ones who are praying, working, and helping to protect our God-birthed country. And so, the kind of things that they faced, we're facing. How do you deal then with the flood of evil. Now, folks, I know evil's always been around, but it is a flood today. I'm reminded of that scripture in Isaiah where it says, when the evil comes in like a flood, the enemy comes in like a flood, God will lift up a standard. And that's what we're doing today. We're giving a standard. How do we deal with it? Well, we need to be spiritually mature. And so, beginning in chapter 5, he gives us some essentials. Now, They are actions. But more than actions, they are attitudes. In fact, you could say about these verses, they are the Beatitudes of Peter. Five basic steps, building blocks that are necessary for our maturity. Now in chapter 5, as it began, he already exhorted the leaders, verses 1 through 4. And then in verse 5, he turns from the shepherd to the sheep. That's why he uses the first word in verse 5, is a transitional word, likewise. So just like that the shepherds need to be mature and need to have these things in their life, likewise do the sheep. And so it says, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. And so these are essentials for growing up. Now in some cases, as we go through these, maybe you already understood that as we read that, they've been familiar to you. But I hope you'll get a fresh insight this morning. Five commandments for spiritual maturity. Number one, we see in these verses a spirit of cooperation. Verse number one, likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Say that little part of the phrase there with me, please. Submit yourselves unto the elder. A spirit of cooperation. The Bible word here is submission. The Greek word Upitasso. Upitasso, it means to line up under. It is primarily a military term, meaning to get in line under leadership. Here the Holy Spirit used a word specifically to remind us of how it works in the Lord's army. Similar to the military, we need to get in line under the spiritual leadership. Specifically, he's talking about the man called bishop or elder or bishop. That uh, elder shepherd 
pastor and bishop, three, one office, three roles. That person uh, is the one who is to be lined up under. It would certainly include, however, anybody who is given the opportunity for leadership in the church. Now, what does God say to do? He says, submit to them. Now, if there's any teaching or doctrine in the Bible that's been misrepresented and falsified, it has to be the word submit. The left just loves to falsely conjure up in our minds visions of the Taliban. Submit, they say. But the truth couldn't be farther away at all. It is a military word. In the U.S. Armed Forces, there is something known as the chain of command. It is a hierarchy. The chain of command is a line of authority and responsibility along which instructions and orders are passed. But there's a simple reason for that. They structure and rules enhance the functioning of the organization. It's about the best way to achieve a common shared goal in the most efficient way. A cooperative spirit makes that happen. People that are eager to help in God's kingdom, compliant, adaptable, responsible, and responsive, are cooperative. And they help achieve the goal that the ministry is set out to do. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, gave a wonderful example of someone who we, a great example of cooperation or submission. There in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, verse 15, he said, I beseech, the word there means to urge, to beg. He was very passionate about this. He didn't just say, I'd like you to do this, I beg you. Brethren and sisters, you know the house of Stephanus. Interesting word there that means crown. That it is the first fruits of Achaia. So Stephanus and his family were some of the first people who had gotten born again in that area of Greece known as Corinth. They had been very faithful. They got saved, born again, and kept serving the Lord. And that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That's a pretty good addiction to have right there. I'm just addicted to serving God. They were a church-centered family. Basically, their life largely revolved around serving God. Then look what it says in verse 16. Submit yourselves to such. He said, I want you to cooperate and put yourself in line underneath Stephanus for the work. And to everyone, not only to Stephanus, but to everyone that helpeth with us and labors. Paul said to the people of the church, get behind your spiritual leaders. Cooperate with them, respect them voluntarily submit to them in the Lord. Pull together with them, and when you do that, you can achieve some wonderful things for Christ. Have you ever considered the fact that we are actually born, built for cooperation? Think about it. We have been given two feet. If those two feet don't cooperate, we're not going anywhere. We've been given two hands. We've been given two jaws, the upper and the lower. If there's no collaboration there, there's going to be chaos. And maybe that's what's going on with some people. Their upper and lower jaws don't collaborate. We have two eyes. Imagine what would happen if just one eye was wandering. (laughs) Sounds like trouble to me. But the fact of the matter is, we are born for cooperation. Two hands that have to work together. Two feet, two eyes, two jaws. Spiritual maturity always calls for a spirit of cooperation. Stepping forward, getting the body moving, means cooperating. If we don't have that, we make the ministry difficult. We make serving God such a chore. Here's what Paul told the church scattered throughout the Roman Empire in Romans chapter 15, verse 22. He said, I have been much hindered from coming to you. Now, we're not told the specifics. We don't know that maybe Paul had a lot of outside opposition. I'm sure he did. But how sad if that opposition was actually on the inside. It was God's people who were resisting and refusing to cooperate. They were apathetic, perhaps. It's been said that the difference between a pile of bricks and a skyscraper 
is cooperation. When we cooperate together, we can make something and we can build something for God. A lack of cooperation not only makes the ministry difficult, but listen closely. You will fail to have a cornerstone in your own spiritual life. Here's what Paul told the Ephesian church in chapter 5, verse 21. Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. It is really a part of fearing God that we learn to cooperate. And I will tell you, friends, this morning, and if I can say so, I say so frankly with an aching heart. I have seen in my lifetime the ebb and flows of people, the comes and goes of many talented people who were given wonderful opportunities and, frankly, frankly, to whom the Holy Spirit had blessed with amazing spiritual gifts and yet never achieved real spiritual maturity or even usefulness and in some cases even hindered the things of God. Why? Because they never learned to slay that hellish spirit that they just had to be preeminent if it was their way or no way. They never learned to cooperate or to submit. Not one. It's not a question of one person being perfect and everybody just follow that person. Nobody's perfect. In fact, all good leaders I know are very aware of their fallibility. And they're always looking for private, wise input from those who have a cooperative spirit. Always. Because we want to make the things of God work well. Spiritual maturity, then, is a call to submission. It is a call to cooperation. William Carey was a great early Baptist missionary. He went to India. He's been called the father of modern missions. He used to tell the churches that supported him a theme, a rescue theme. He said, if you will hold the ropes, I will go down and look for the lost. He started with six supporters, served for 47 years in India, and set in motion an entire movement. When we cooperate, one may be down there searching, others are holding the ropes. We do mighty things for God. Not only a spirit of cooperation, but number two, a spirit of contribution, verse 5. He just follows up that first command with a second one right immediately. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Now, he's using the word younger, just anybody. It could be even someone who's older in age. It's just someone who gets behind those that are serving in the ministry. Yes, in fact, all of you be subject to one another. And be clothed with humility. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud. By the way, that word resist there is the word for opposed. In fact, the Greek word means that God is actually hostile. And that does not sound good. I do not want God against me. That sounds dangerous. But he gives grace to the humble. Notice what it says, give. We are to be clothed with humility. What is cooperation's twin? It is a spirit of humility. That's really the only way that cooperation works is when we get humble. It is a spirit of humility. But notice how it's phrased. It says, clothe yourself. Clothe yourself. Very interesting word. You may have heard it before. It is a Greek word that means to tie the apron on. It means to tie an apron, pick a, uh, an apron and tie a knot in it. Back in the day, it was a way that a slave might put an apron over their clothes so they wouldn't get dirty. But it became a word for humble service. And so here's what God is basically saying. He said, we are to wake up every morning with the attitude, I am here to serve. Put the apron on and say, well, there we go. I am here to serve. Whether it's my wife, my husband, my fellow believer, the people in this world, I am not above the lowliest of tasks. I will do whatever I can to serve God. That's the humble spirit. Now God said, I want you to have this kind of a spirit towards two people, two groups. Number one, I want you to have it towards one another. Look what it says in verse 5. First toward one another. First toward one another. Verse number 5. Towards one another. It's very likely Peter was remembering an incident that is recorded for us in John chapter 13. It's the Last Supper. Jesus was looking down at his dear 
hard-working disciples' unwashed, sandal feet. He realized they'd been going and blowing and didn't have time to wash their feet. They were going to be sitting there in close quarters, and eating would probably be difficult, and it would be uncomfortable for them, everybody else as well. So our Lord, looking down there at those feet, now remember, this is God. This is King of kings and Lord of lords. We're talking about the omnipotent God of the universe. He looks down at those dirty feet, and he bends down, he puts an apron on, and he washes those aching feet. That, my friend, is an attitude of a servant towards one another. What can I best do to serve you today? One Christian author said this. He said, there are 750 halls of fame in America, 450 who's who publications, but likely you won't find many real servants in those places because notoriety means nothing to real servants. They know the difference between prominence and significance. I love the Holy Spirit who supports this truth here in First Peter chapter 5 with a quote from the Old Testament. He quotes Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34. Notice what Solomon said. Surely he scorneth. That means God's opposed to the scorners, the proud. But he giveth grace to the lowly. Now here we see why. If for no other reason, we should have a servant's heart. Not only for the world, not only for the kingdom of God, not only so that things can go forward, but God said, it's actually the best thing for you. God will give you grace. And I definitely need some of that, don't you? I love that major prophet Isaiah in chapter 66 and verse 2, the last chapter there in Isaiah. Look at verse 2. But to this man will I look. God speaking, but to this man will I look. God's looking at me and after me, even to him that is of a poor and contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. My friend, if God is looking at me, then God's going to bless me. I want the eye of God on my life. Why do we need grace? You know, I see people stumbling around, honestly, looking for some kind of fix, therapy, counseling, some book that will deliver them from the situation, when often, really, and very simply, they're not experiencing the grace of God. They're so self-consumed that they can't get the grace of God. They say, but Pastor, you don't understand. My situation just is impossible. It might be impossible, but it is not Him possible. And that's what happens when you get the grace of God. You get Him who works on lives, and He will step in there. It is only possible as we shift our focus from self to others, and then God says, I'm looking at that, and He pours grace on us. Because we know we need grace if we're going to serve others. A servant's heart, first of all, is towards others. Second of all, it is towards God. Look at verse 6 now. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and He may exalt you in due time. Now, as believers, we exist under His mighty hand. What is that phrase talking about? Well, it's actually an allusion back to the Old Testament. God's mighty hand. The idea here is that God covers God's controlling power, His mighty hand. You know, it's one thing for a person to simply believe in God or try to be religious. It's another for a person to humble themselves recognizing the mighty hand of God, submitting to God. Many people don't uh, submit to God. Here's one real way that you can do so, and that is by saying, I accept the entire Bible. I accept the Old Testament and the New Testament as completely true and trustworthy. 100% of God's original Scripture is preserved and inerrant. Do you believe that? Do you say, I believe the Bible cover to cover without error? When a person humbles themselves under the mighty hand of God, they realize that the Bible is not just about religion, and it's accurate in that, but it is perfect in its rendition of history. 
Nothing that man has written about history is infallible. God's rendition of history as found in Scripture is 100% accurate. All matters of life, whatever God says about them, are true in the Bible, including science. Do you accept that? Do you accept this morning that everything that God says in the Bible is 100% true and trustworthy? Then if you do, you are humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God. If you don't, if there's a catch in your spirit this morning, then my friend, you are not humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter said, I don't question God. I don't argue with God. Now, I don't always understand God. And I would say, I'd be quick to say, I don't understand all the Bible. I don't even get how it all works. But I will tell you one thing. I don't debate it. And I don't debate God. I humble myself unto the Word of God. I just keep going forward, trying to do the best I can to follow it. And then I trust God to give me the understanding as we go along. I am placed in a world to serve God. Wherever, whenever, however, I can do to make a contribution. I'm here to give my talents to the Lord, whatever they might be, my time, my treasure, all the while realizing that this isn't crown time, this is cross-bearing time. And that's why in this verse he says that he may exalt you in due time. Notice what he says. He's going to exalt you. If you will humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, if you will serve others and you will get underneath God, then God said, I will exalt you in due season, in due time. What is the proper time? His time, not our time. The perfect time for God to lift you up, it's His time. George Matheson, in his book, Thought for Life's Journey, says this, My fellow pilgrim, is progress more painful than you expected? Are you beginning to wonder? Are you on the wrong road? Trust me, you're not. God is at work. His mighty hand is above you. His love is around you. Remember, and I love this phrase, you are in the robing room for royalty. The tailor's name is Grace. And when you are perfectly fitted, the process will end. Yep, we are due for a blessing. When you not only cooperate, but when you contribute to the things of God. Third of all, the third step, the third building block of mature life is a spirit of confidence, verse 7. <clears throat> this third attitude is this, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares with you. What does it mean to be mature? It means to just have this trusting heart, this quiet confidence that God will take care of it. God cares. Notice what He says, casting all your care. It's not just a passive sitting there looking out at the stream or looking out on the beach there in the beautiful Caribbean island. I mean, that's all nice, but that's not especially peace. What peace means is you are casting. That is not passive. That is actually a deliberate choice to turn everything over to God. The word they're casting is the same word used as taking a blanket and throwing it on something. In fact, it's used in Luke 19 that very same way. Dr. Luke gave us this story about Palm Sunday. It says they brought him to Jesus, the donkey, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. When the Holy Spirit told Peter, he said, I want you to tell people, cast your burdens on the Lord. It's just like Peter was saying, take your heartaches, take your burdens, take your adversity, and take it and place it square on the back of Jesus. Spiritual maturity comes as you place your burdens on the Lord. A quiet confidence. Why? Because there's a God who cares. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Now, if you were to take your Greek lexicon, and you were to... Look up this little sentence here, and I recommend you using the Blue Letter Bible. It's a great app, and you can begin to look at all of these things. But if you go to the lexicon there, you will find that the word all is the first word in this particular verse. Now, why would God put all before caring? Because scholars say it's for emphasis, all. 
So it's like God was saying, all, yes, all, just so you know, all, any adversity, any problem, any sickness, any situation, all, 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 cast it. All, cast it, without exception, cast it on the Lord. He is big enough and He can carry that great need. Isaiah chapter 53 is probably the greatest chapter in the Old Testament that gives us a prophecy that Christ is the Messiah. But have you ever thought about that verse in verse 4? Isaiah 53 and verse 4, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The The word born means to lift up and bear away. He is the burden bearer. As we go through life, Jesus carries our burdens. In fact, He's promised to carry our burdens. And notice what it says. He hath done it. That is past tense. He has already done it. Hallelujah. God has already taken care of our burdens. How do we know that God carries our burdens? Because God carries us. He carries us. He has got us in a wonderful bear hug. And He is carrying us. And if God carries us, we know He has our burdens. I love that verse in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15. God says you need to have quiet confidence that God is going to take care of it. Isaiah 30 and verse 15. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you'll be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Peace, a settled confidence that God is in control. And I can give him every area, casting all your care. The word care means to be pulled apart in all directions. And when the circumstances multiply and the difficulties start piling up, God said, just say stop. Cast it upon the Lord. A person who is strong in the Lord just stops and says, you know what? God's going to have to carry this one. I love that wonderful promise in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 28. You remember when we went through that amazing Sermon on the Mount? And Jesus was telling folks, look, you don't need to worry. Remember how he said it? And why ye take thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow and they toil not. But have you ever thought about that where he gave the emphasis on you? Ye is the Old Testament, or the Old English way of which meaning you. He said, why would you be that way? I mean, why would you? And we're like, well, why not? Well, why would you? Because you that believe in God, you that have trusted Christ, you that God has born into His family, you are a child of God. You are a child of the King. You, He could be meaning you, human. You really can't do anything about it anyway. Why would you as a human worry about plants growing? That's beyond your thinking. Why would you do that? Give it to Jesus. Maybe that's why that wonderful hymn writer wrote, I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, He will kindly help me. He ever loves and cares for His own. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. An experienced physician decided that he would check out the warriors who were his patients. He felt like it was attributing to their sickness. He found out from talking to them that 40% were apprehensive over things that actually never ended up happening. 30% concerned themselves with past matters that were now beyond their control. Another 12% were people who were fearing things that, like sickness that they really couldn't do anything about. It was just, and a lot of times was in their imagination. He said the rest really worried about their family, their friends, their neighbors, which almost in every case they really couldn't do anything about. Folks, we really have very little control over the circumstances of life. We can't control the weather or the economy or what people think about us. 
The only area we have any control about is the kingdom inside of our heart. As someone once said, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so, five commandments for spiritual maturity, a spirit of cooperation, a spirit of contribution, a spirit of confidence. And now, number four, you've got to build into your life a spirit of control, self-control. Now, this is something we looked at recently. The Bible word is sober. But I want to expand on it a minute. Look at verse 8. Be sober. Be sober. Now, usually when we use that word in our time right now, we would be referring to intoxication, and that is the literal use. And I would say here as a pastor, nothing ever good comes from beverage alcohol, just so we're clear about that. But that's not what this is really referring to, I don't believe, mainly. It is referring metaphorically to the discipline of mind and body that avoids the intoxicating allurements of the world. As you read through the Bible, you know this, and it especially reverberates so strongly in the book of Psalms. Life is to be enjoyed. Life is to be enjoyed. Now, there is an endurance factor, to be sure. But God said, enjoy life. Laugh and have fun. But stay sober while you're doing so. Stay in control. Clear-headed. Stay awake. You know... Friends, there is no group on earth that has more fun than Christians. One of the lies that people swallow, especially younger people, is that the Christian life is boring. Nothing could be further than the truth. Jesus Christ was as fun-loving as anybody. If you kind of read through the Gospels with an idea of what Jesus did in his life, you'll notice he went for walks, he went hiking, as it were, he went fishing. Not always probably the greatest fun fishing, but... We also know that he enjoyed fellowship, he enjoyed worshiping God and serving people. He was a very joyful, engaging person. In fact, that's why Psalms 126 and verse 2, it says, Then was our mouth filled with laughter. Our mouth was filled with laughter and singing, as Pastor Luke wisely mentioned a few moments ago. It is a symbol of Christianity to be happy people. In fact, the Bible is full of a sense of humor. I mean, you can't read the Old Testament stories without laughing, and many of the New Testament as well. Think of the story of Balaam, that backslidden prophet. God was trying to get his attention, and so what did he do? He had a donkey talk to Balaam. I think the funny part of the story was, though, that Balaam talked back to the donkey. (laughs) I could say... God uses donkeys to talk all the time, but I might get myself in trouble here. (laughs) You know why Christians are the happiest people? Listen, because we are made up, our very beings are three-part. The theological term is tripartite. We are made of three things. We have a body, which we see. But you know, that's not the real you. I'm looking at your body. You're looking at my body. Tim does not, this is not Tim. This is Tim's body. I also have a mind. The Bible uses the term soul. My body and my mind. Now, even an unbeliever, they can be a spirit, they can be a physical specimen of amazing. I mean, 100% are in that body area. I mean, not many of us like that, but. You could be a hundred percenter in the body area. And then in your mind, you could be a hundred percenter. Boy, I mean, you're just like, you're just quick and you exercise your mind, you read a lot. But that's only still two-thirds of who we are. There's a third part called the spirit. The spirit is that God consciousness part. An animal has a body, an animal has a mind, maybe not emotions, but a mind. But only a human has a spirit. That's why a person who neglects their spirit is only two-thirds complete. At best, they're down in the D range. They're not a C or a B or an A person. Only Christians can be A-plusers because they exercise the spirit. So here's what God said. He said, I want you to have fun in life. I want you to live it up, but stay sober while you're doing so. I think the best 
way to say it is maybe what Ecclesiastes says in chapter 3 and verse 4. Just always remember what time it is. Just remember what time it is. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. There's a different things to do at different times. When it's time to play, then play and have fun. When it's time to work, then work. Just never get so distracted that you lose sight of your relationship with God. Stay serious about God while you're having a great time. Laura Schlesinger said it this way, entering into a relationship with God is not just about rewards we receive in this world or the next, but rather how we should show God that we are serious about our relationship with Him. A spirit of cooperation, we need to get behind the work of God. A spirit of contribution, how can I best serve you? A spirit of confidence, I put it all on Jesus. I rest in Him. A spirit of control, soberness. And then finally, the fifth building block to be a strong Christian, that God wants us to be the fifth fundamental, is a spirit of commitment. A spirit of commitment. Here God says, don't get lazy. Don't let down your guard, or you are lunch meat for the enemy, I promise you. Be sober, be vigilant. Be vigilant. Make sure you are committed to what's going on. Because your adversary, the devil, the enemy is very real. He is an adversary. Now, he is not just an adversary. Notice what it says. Very clearly, he is your adversary. Did you know that he's got you in his sights? Now, every hunter, I, I tried hunting a little bit one time. I've tried shooting the nice little squirrels that are burrowing under the house, but I'm not a very good hunter. But I do know this much, that you hit nothing unless you put them in the sights. Your adversary, you are in his sights. Notice it says, he is your devil. That's basically what it says. You have a devil that's after you. You have a demon that's after you. He's not only the adversary of God, He's not only the adversary of the church of God. He is your adversary. And by the way, the word adversary means a legal opponent in a lawsuit. The devil is trying to sue you for damages to his kingdom. He hates you. He hates the fact that you have become a Christian. He hates the fact that you give to the kingdom. He hates the fact that you help others. He hates it. That's why the Bible says your adversary, the devil... The word there is diablos. comes from two words, dia, meaning through, and balo, meaning to throw something. And that's exactly what the devil does. He is throwing everything. I mean, he's throwing the kitchen sink at your marriage, at your health, at your finances. He's doing everything he can to divide you. And he's also going to chew you up. Notice it says, he is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, there are lots of metaphors in the Old and New Testament for the devil. There are quite a few of them. But here God uses the idea of a lion. A lion is a great illustration because a lion is powerful. They're big, 600 pounds, some of them. They can bound at 20 feet in one big jump. They can cover 100 yards in five seconds. They are totally unpredictable, and they roar. It's a roaring lion. They don't even have to attack. Just the roar alone can frighten. In fact, it's been known that some of those little gazelles and others have had heart attacks and die right there. They just die. I mean, and the devil is trying to frighten you. He roars also to alert other lions to be on the lookout. They also roar so that the herd will spread. When the herd spreads and they leave the group, they become the lions are looking for the ones who are young or incapacitated, and they get them. 
And that's exactly what happens when people leave the fellowship. They're out there on their own too much. You are a prey for a roaring lion. Be careful, my friend. Notice what it says, be vigilant. That really just means to stay awake. That's really what it means. It means don't go to sleep on the, at the wheel. Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 26, verse 40, he cometh to his disciples, he find them asleep. What? He came to his disciples and he found them asleep and said unto Peter, What? At this most critical moment, could you not be vigilant for one hour? One hour is what I asked for. Stay awake for one hour. Obey with a sense of urgency. The great Puritan Joseph Hall said, The devil rocks the cradle when we sleep in our devotions. Now, I'm not saying we should be looking behind every bush for a demon, but I am saying, folks, and you know this, our culture is demonized. All the mass murder, the occult involvement, all the suicide, this trans ideology, folks, it is nothing more than demonic. It is absolutely just a, an attack of the devil, and it's only going to get worse. The Bible says he is seeking. The devil is on a search and destroy mission constantly. He is looking for any way to trip you, to trick you, to make you stop serving God, quit going to church, quit doing the right thing, quit reading your Bible. He is constant. I mean, he never stops. And notice what it says. His goal is to devour. The word means to drink down, to swallow up completely. Did you know it's not the devil's plan to just kind of take a few little nibbles out of you? No. He wants to gobble you. He wants to dis- he doesn't he doesn't want to just win. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy every marriage and everybody's life and every child's life. He is not happy until he destroys. My friend, the devil is out to eat us alive. As someone has well said, some of you are living in such a way, you are already lying on his dinner plate. And the sound you hear is the devil licking his lips. Folks, spiritual maturity is a battle. Choose your side carefully. Because if you don't follow Jesus, you're on the losing side. Examine your heart. Make sure you're integrating these five commandments. Always engage yourself with all of your heart and say, all right, Lord, I want to build these fundamentals of music, as it were, these fundamentals into my life that will support me. Don't try to do it without Jesus. He cares for you. Our heads are bowed in our eyes. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.